This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Coming up, avoiding a ghastly future with Paul Ehrlich, Bill Rees, and Nate Hargens. But first, American neurosurgeon Anne Christine Newhame, minding the climate, how neuroscience can help solve our environmental crisis. This is Radio EcoShock. We humans had the same brain for at least 100,000 years, but only developed technology in the last 2,000 years. Is that brain equipped to deal with rapid climate change? Let's ask someone who knows what is inside your head. Anne Christine Duhame is a medical doctor. She is former director of pediatric neurosurgery at Massachusetts General Hospital and distinguished professor of neurosurgery at Harvard Medical School. She is associate editor-in-chief for the Journal of Climate Change and Health. Then Anne Christine wondered, what can I contribute to understanding climate change? The result is her new book, Minding the Climate, How Neuroscience Can Help Solve Our Environmental Crisis. Anne Christine Duhame, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you very much. Why do you think the brain has remained a mystery for most of human time? Well, the brain is mysterious by definition. It is the most complicated biologic structure that evolution ever invented. And uh, it's enormous. It has hundreds of billions of cells, and they communicate with one another in extraordinarily complex ways. So it has taken the evolution of modern technology to unravel some of the mysteries. And we're still really at the beginning of a road that will last for many eons longer to truly understand uh, all the subtleties of the human brain. It is really weird. I have a brain, and I still don't really understand how it works. Uh, I know more about car engines than I do about my own brain. (laughs) Well, you're not alone in that. So are there discoveries in your field that you find exciting? Well, yes, in particular relevant to this problem. I mean, there are many, many discoveries that come out every day with respect to diseases that affect the brain and diseases that affect the rest of the body. You can't go hours without something new coming out about a new gene therapy or a new molecular biology target that can affect multiple aspects of health. But with respect to the brain, I have always been interested in the intersection of brain and behavior. Now, in my field of neurosurgery, Alex, there are two pathways one is generally populated by people who would have been surgeons of any kind, you know, of some other kind. They might have been heart surgeons or they might have been plastic surgeons, but they got into neurosurgery and, and really liked that. But then there's another whole cadre of people that end up in neurosurgery that start off with a basic curiosity about how does the brain work. And people like that might have ended up in psychiatry or neuroscience research. But some of us ended up in neurosurgery and never uh, lost that curiosity about how does the brain actually do what it does to make us the kind of people that we are. And then with respect to climate change, from the point of view of somebody who deals with the brain all the time in, in sickness and health and disease and trauma, we view everything as being about the brain. That's, that's our bias. That's our you know, blind spot, perhaps. But when you think about problems in the world that result from human decision-making, for somebody in the neuroscience field, that human decision-making happens for reasons that are understood, at least from one perspective, from understanding how the brain is designed to work. Well, people think that climate change may be a political problem or an economic one or even psychiatric, but 
Is it possible we have a brain barrier that limits our ability to act? Yeah, so I would go back to the beginning of your question, which is, you know, people say it's economic, it's political. Well, who makes economic rules? Who follows economic trends? What are politicians using other than their brains? And one can say, oh, yes, but it's self-interest, it's economic self-interest, it's financial gain. Well, all of those things are processed through and decided upon by the brain. So you can't separate out even macro-level events from the brains that make the decisions that create these events. So I guess you could say that if Earth were hit by an asteroid, that wouldn't be because of the brain. But if Earth is being destroyed by things that humans are doing, it's helpful, it could be helpful to understand, you know, why that is, why those kinds of behaviors are prevalent, and then to think about how do we typically solve vexing problems that face us? How have we done it in the past? And are there particular problems that we're better at than others? And this was the source of this exploration from someone, myself, who, you know, looks at the world through a brain point of view and was interested in applying those same kind of questions to this big problem of climate change. Yes. Earlier in your decades of neurosurgery, you were aware of overpopulation and pollution. Do you feel that was a minority position within your community? Are you hearing more within the medical community about climate change and the role of the hospital in particular? Yes, this has been a big change during my career. And it's an interesting question because I can remember relatively early in my career being uh, in charge of being assigned to be the head of the ethics committee of one of our national organizations for my specialty of pediatric neurosurgery. And in that capacity, I raised some of these questions about resource allocation because fields like mine justifiably are the recipients of many of the discoveries and the technologies that human ingenuity has wrought to help deal with reduction of suffering in individual people. But at the same time, there are so many people in the world who are beyond anything that we in a high-income country in an academic medical center ever experience. My perspective of having us maybe consider how we use resources and the kinds of resources that we bring to bear for individual children in light of the sort of more global problems really was striking to me what a minority position I was in with that. And in fact, not only was it a minority position, but it was felt to be unethical because we take a, an oath in medicine to bring everything we can to bear for the patient who is in front of us. And that's how we're trained. That's what we're taught. That's what we pass on to our trainees. But I, for most of my career, had a little bit of a conflict with that because, yes, I understand that's the career you've chosen, that's the responsibility you have, but it doesn't mean that you necessarily need to also blind yourself to other problems of larger scope and magnitude outside your own lens and your own experience on a day-to-day -day world. It doesn't absolve you of the need for at least some people who are interested to look beyond what we do in our professional lives to problems that may be um, of a larger scope. Well, yes, if you're going to be fixing up kids' health, it, it matters what kind of a world you're sending them out into. And until I read your book, Minding the Climate, I did not know the American health care system is responsible for about 8% of the nation's greenhouse gas emissions. How is that possible? 
Well, because it's high tech, and high tech takes a lot of energy. The kinds of things that we can do, they really are miraculous cures, and people have worked incredibly hard with their talents to try to improve the technology of healthcare, and amazing gains have been made, uh, even in my career, and they're accelerating because science and technology accelerate because new discoveries lead to more new discoveries, so it's not a linear change, it's really an accelerating change somewhat akin to climate change. But the interesting thing has been that people in the healthcare field are generally scientifically oriented and they read about climate change and they have become, as a group, uh, on average, increasingly more and more concerned with this more global issue. In part, this is because it's worsening and it's becoming more and more apparent even in high-income countries that are relatively able to deal with some of these consequences of extreme weather and prolonged heat and wildfires, etc. Not every individual is going to escape these devastating problems, even in high-income countries like ours. Nonetheless, the science has been uh, accelerating, the calls have become louder, and the medical community, by and large, has gotten behind, increasingly, a call to both reduce their own contribution to greenhouse gases where possible, where it doesn't compete with caring for people's health in the best way possible, uh, short-term health, but also they have gotten more involved in advocacy and trying to make the case for policymakers, legislators, uh, government officials, international agencies, that to ignore climate change is in fact to ignore health even if it's not health in the way that we have conceived of it, especially in very narrow specialties like mine. Well, certainly journals like The Lancet have gotten behind the idea that climate health is medical health, too. Tell us more about your Green Hospital project. This was a project that I came up with for a variety of reasons. One is because I personally have the opinion that pediatric care is optimized in a setting where it's all kids all the time. That is where your systems and your physical proximity to other people taking care of children, where the setting and the comforts designed for families and children uh, are all co-localized in a a physical space. My hospital at the time uh, that I joined it uh, did not have that sort of an arrangement. It's one of a minority of hospitals, uh, general hospitals that have a distributed physical arrangement for the care of children in the hospital. So a number of us felt that this was a direction we wanted to go in anyway, was to have a facility specifically for children uh, all together in the same physical space. And at that same time, I was seriously contemplating spending more of my energies on this issue of climate change and health. And also, I wanted to do an experiment, honestly. I wanted to see test my, some of the work I had done, you know, to read the literature, uh, I wanted to test the idea that one of the basic impediments to our ability to make behavioral choices and behavioral changes that are pro-environmental is that those kind of behavioral choices simply don't provide the same kind of rewards that we have historically, uh, and most of us on our daily lives, used to make decisions. And so the Green Children's Hospital became an experiment to say, how would it work to make something that we want anyway more appealing to the decision makers in the institution 
by aligning it with those things that they're rewarded for. They may not care much about climate change or they may care about it, but it may not be part of what is in their self idea of their job description. But could we align this project in other ways to make it more rewarding? And so then we had to investigate, well, what are people at the top of a a prestigious healthcare center uh, rewarded by? And, you know, you can come up with your own list, but what this was was really an experiment to see how far could we encourage pro-environmental behavior by aligning it with what would be rewarding to the people at the top who make the ultimate decisions. Now, faced with developing climate disaster, some scientists call for geoengineering the Earth like spring aerosols to reflect more sunlight. And the efficacy and the, and the side effects are unknown until we try them. Are there likewise some thoughts to geoengineer the human brain to initiate changes at the brain level like a, a climate drug or a survival implant or something outrageous like that? Yeah, it's interesting you ask. You're not the first person who's asked me that in this exploration. And some people who hear about, you know, what I've done ask that. Are you going to implant? Are you going to give transcranial magnetic stimulation? Are you going to change the brain? And my answer to that, as you say, it's somewhat a fantastical kind of idea, is here's the good news. You don't need any of that. That's not what you need. You already have a brain that is exquisitely designed by Mother Nature, by evolution, to be changeable. If it weren't, we would never have gotten both the progress that we've made as a species and into the same trouble that we're talking about with climate change and other effects, pollution and so forth, of our industrial and technical progress. So your brain already can change its mind. And what I uh, explored in the book is, what do we know about what makes difficult behavior change easier? What comes easily to us? What doesn't? And so I looked at some of the more difficult behavior change problems, Uh, addiction, addiction both to drugs and other substances, but also people can become addicted under certain circumstances to certain behaviors, which I think provide at least a little hint of an insight into other difficult behavior changes that are less directly externally chemical and more having to do with the way we behave. Along the same lines, your brain is designed to be adaptable to value different things. And the book goes into uh, some extraordinary examples of that. But in the medical field, we see those kinds of adaptations and changes on a daily basis. Almost everyone knows someone that's had a stroke or some other brain issue And as you know, people get better from these things. Well, how do they get better? They get better because your brain is already designed exquisitely to remodel uh, itself and to learn new things and to recover from various insults that it can be subjected to. So we don't need to get fantastic about brain drugs or brain implants or anything else. We've already got the equipment that we need. Yes, I know that when people lose their hearing, the neurons formerly associated with interpreting the signals from the ear, they go on to other tasks. And when the person gets hearing aids, that doesn't become normal right away. You have to train new neurons to interpret the sounds. So this plasticity, as you call it in the book, might be a real boon to help us now that we face these big challenges. That's right. And one of the things that uh, I learned as I studied 
what has been written about difficult behavioral change, way beyond what I knew from my own clinical experience in medicine, is that one of the very strong rewards is social reward. Humans are exquisitely designed to be sensitive to social reward. Now, if you just think about yourself and your own circle of friends, you'll know that there are some people who are more receptive, more attuned to social reward than others. There are more independent people and there are more social people. I mean, any uh, elementary school teacher can tell you which kids have which traits. And we all vary along these traits. It's not a yes or no, it's a gradation. But on average, humans and other animals, but we're talking about humans in this conversation, are very, very attuned to and responsive to social rewards. So when you are rewarded at your job, in part what you find rewarding is other people telling you you did a good job. Now, for those of us in medicine who had many, many years of schooling, maybe that selects out for people who are particularly responsive to being told they did a good job or getting an A-plus on an exam. And I recognize that in the population, people respond to different kinds of social interactions and social rewards. Nonetheless, when one wants to change behavior, particularly difficult behavior, social rewards are one of the most effective ways. So most addiction treatment programs that have been shown to be more effective than others, and there's no silver bullet, but the ones that work the best tend to have a strong component of social reward, meaning there are other people who support you. There are other people who are going through it simultaneously. There are other people who are human and have their failures, but with the encouragement of the group, they can get past their lapses. Likewise, we learn from our social context what is valued in our society. Religion can play a big part in this. Your family and your teachers, um, any kind of authority figure can play a big role in what you as an individual and those around you think is important, think is rewarding, and what kind of behaviors are acceptable compared to less acceptable. Likewise, with a problem like climate change, well, even 10 or 15 years ago, if you talked about this when you went out to dinner with somebody, it might have been considered a little weird. It's not weird anymore. If you got an electric car when they first came out, you would be kind of, what, what's that all about? Who would want that? Well, it's pretty common to want an electric car now, or at least a hybrid. So what is considered rewarding changes as the culture changes. And in the book, it explains what we know about how this happens at the level of the brain and how something that wasn't rewarding, wasn't appealing, didn't make your heart beat, that can change. And it changes throughout your life, about every sphere of your life. But climate change is no different. This is Radio EcoShock. Alex is talking with Dr. Anne-Christine Duhame, author of Minding the Climate, How Neuroscience Can Help Solve Our Environmental Crisis. In your book, Minding the Climate, you write, the reward of novelty has an obvious association with consumption. Could you talk to us about that? Yeah, I found this really interesting. Let's say you're a salesperson, and I think this is akin to one of the examples in the book. And you're a salesperson, you happen to work in a furniture store, or maybe it's an online furniture, housewares kind of a sales thing. And you are rewarded by how much you sell. Well, what's your strategy? Your strategy is to increase your rewards for doing a good job at your, jo at, at your employment by making people think that what you have to sell is what they want and what they need. 
yourself, as the person who's the buyer, you can consume, let's say you consume a new sofa because your old one was uncomfortable and kind of dumpy looking. Well, if you're the store salesperson, you say, you know, this sofa is specially designed in this collection by this designer to go with this side chair. Don't you think that would also really look great in your living room? And when you go home, you just bought the sofa, but you keep thinking about that chair and how nice that would look. And so the idea of something new, the problem is after a few months, the sofa tends to not look so new anymore. And there is an inherent human drive for novelty, uh, just like socialness. It, it varies from person to person. Some people are more rewarded by novelty than others, and it can vary throughout the lifespan on average with younger people being more rewarded by novelty than uh, they are later in their life cycle. Nonetheless, novelty, because it wears off uh, and because it is rewarding, it's a great spur for increased consumption. And it isn't so different at an institutional or organizational or business level. If you're the CEO or you're the assistant manager or you're the head of the school or the university or whatever your job is, That idea of getting more, getting something new, doing something uh, novel, uh, those rewards and getting more of it because it wears off, those are part of the way we are designed. And they can work contrary to what we need to do for the climate change problem. So around one quarter of all the humans alive on this planet are under the age of 25. Do you think young brains see things differently and and maybe that will help get us over the need that we have to develop a mass public consciousness about climate change? I think that's absolutely true. Certainly a significant amount of the social movement that has accelerated the concerns about climate change and the vociferousness of protest uh, has come from youth. Now, there are multiple sort of neurologic reasons for that. One, you know, they, they are responsible in general uh, to each other. They, they are very concerned about other peers by nature. That's, that's what they, uh, you know, they don't have responsibility often in the adolescent years for uh, dependence. So they have some freedom to be very passionate about a cause because they're not, they don't have other responsibilities that, that moor them to the practical world in the same way that people who are stuck in a routine of work and providing for others uh, may have. Not to say that they don't have responsibilities, because, of course, this varies greatly, and some people would. Some of the worst responsibilities and the worst life situations are some of the most effective and passionate um, protesters. But the other thing about uh, the young brain is that people have what I would call high amplitude when they're young, tend to, on average, feel things very strongly. Things are are quite clear. They are not distracted by competing pulls from the commercial world or the world of work and and many other things. And they tend to be more flexible. They they tend to be more able to consider other points of view. On the other hand, they're also more persuadable uh, oftentimes because they are heavily influenced by their peers and their peers tend to be more uniform Nonetheless, that can be wonderful energy for uh, significantly effective social movements. Finally, with respect to climate change, this is their future. And so one can make a very strong argument that this will affect them the most and that they have the most to lose. And currently, they have the least political power. 
So these influences uh, coalesce to give them a very strong uh, sense of moral standing, and that comes through in some of the very effective protesting that's been done. Here we are on a radio program interviewing experts hoping to change a few minds, but you write, while generally we can adapt and learn new responses, it's harder for us to change our habits when it's not because our circumstances have changed, but just because we receive new information, end quote. Well, that's a serious problem. Vital climate information tells us we have to change to avoid disaster, but the circumstances of living have not changed enough yet to demand that. I guess just knowing isn't enough for the brains we have. That's exactly right. And um, studies have shown that if you are trying to change somebody's behavior, people's behavior is much more likely to change if they hear the rationale or they hear that someone has changed whom they already know and trust. But the other factor was if the person from whom they learned about the energy efficiency was someone they knew, a neighbor, a relative, as opposed to some expert they read or something they heard on the radio, (laughs) not not to put down anything people learn on the radio, but the point I'm making is that climate change, when people hear about it from experts, put that in, in quotation marks, and they're, they're otherwise motivated to not change their behavior because things are pretty comfortable. The fact that this new information comes from someone they don't know, uh, never heard of, and is some, somehow different from them. You know, it's an academic, for example, and, and they're not in the academic world. It's received uh, much less favorably, and it engenders change much less frequently. But what is happening now, gradually, gradually, not fast enough, but gradually, is all the things that you discussed previously, the youth movement. Many people we hear got their minds changed by their children because their kids came home from high school or even, or their kids were in college and their kids came home and said, Dad, we're getting an electric car as our next car. (laughs) You know, you owe it to us to not keep wrecking the climate. And I can't tell you how many physicians that I've seen in my sphere who have become converted because of their children. And so I think that while we have difficulty sometimes making changes by an authority, you know, so-called authority that we don't know and don't have experience with, as more and more people sign on to what needs to be done, or at least recognizing the depth of the problem, then it's more likely that the information will actually come from someone you know, not from some disembodied head on a talk show that, you know, you don't trust. And these are how social movements change. Nonetheless, I would go back to say that the equation by which you change uh, happens in your brain. So, yes, there are social levels and institutional levels and political levels, but all of these things that change somebody's mind happens within the brain of that individual person. Is there anything else that you would like to tell our listeners? Well, my editor who, you know, uh, when you write a book, you have an editor who gives you suggestions. She wanted me to leave people with some takeaway messages, which I had resisted because I'm not much of a takeaway message kind of a person. This was more of an exploration. But I do credit her with sort of forcing me to, to do that. And The takeaway messages are as follows. One, don't expect pro-environmental behavior decisions to feel the same emotionally, that gut check feel, 
as other decisions you're used to making. Those come from a different time in evolution. If you're deciding what to, what to choose for dinner, those choices come from a different place. Pro-environmental behavior is not going to feel the same, but intellectually you're going to have to override the fact that it doesn't seem like such a high priority, but just because you know better, you need to lean in that direction. And the other thing to realize is that you will be helped by bonding with other people, collaborating with other people who are like-minded. That's number two. And number three is the way you feel will influence others because the brain is designed to be influenced by other people. And if this is something that concerns you, just talking about it without even proselytizing or hitting people over the head, which tends to make them resist, but just the way you behave, the way you talk, uh, if you're the boss of somebody, just having it be important to you will change the minds and the brains of people who listen to you. So those were my three sort of conclusions. It's not easy. It can be done. It's going to take a lot of work on everyone's part. And understanding the brain's predispositions may just be one other little way to help. We have been speaking with one of America's leading experts in neurosurgery. Now, Dr. Anne-Christine Duhame is exploring the brain and global warming with her new book, Minding the Climate, How Neuroscience Can Help Solve Our Environmental Crisis. Find more discussion and links to follow up in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. Anne-Christine, thank you for bringing your expertise in here to help us out. Thank you very much for the chance. Thanks. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. Why don't humans act to save the climate? Following up on our guest, neurosurgeon, we have a panel of excellent minds as recorded March in 2022. It features Paul Ehrlich, author of The Population Bomb and a dozen more books, UBC Professor Emeritus William Rees, and the finance and energy guru Nate Hagens. All three have been guests on Radio EcoShock. They discuss the paper, Underestimating the Challenges of Avoiding a Ghastly Future. The recording is by the group Living Resilience and the Poetry of Predicament podcast. The full presentation lasts an hour and a half. Here we pull out key segments relating to our theme, Mental Barriers to Action. Due to poor audio, I was unable to include the eminent Mexican scientist Gerardo Ceballos. Radio EcoShock previously broadcast a feature interview with the lead author of the paper, Professor Corey Bradshaw in Australia. Now let's dig in with this short talk by the famous Stanford biologist Dr. Paul Ehrlich on why the Ghastly Future paper was published, why these scientists had to pass on such bad news. Underestimating the challenge of avoiding a ghastly future has its own history. It was originally conceived by Paul Ehrlich and Graham Pike in Australia as a call to arms, a challenge to scientists, a blazing merciless statement of the failure of the scientific community to convey the very dire future ahead if action isn't taken now. Are scientists just cowards? Is there something more nuanced about the culture of the scientific community blocking progress? Or is the lack of awareness, given the strong science evidence, driven by other factors? Eventually, what came to be 17 authors saw our path. 
lay out a comprehensive, not too long, absolutely honest and accessible description of humanity's challenge and bring it to the global community. The millions of people who at some level know something is very wrong and that future generations are threatened. If we, the authors, could describe the human predicament in an easily understood way, then we could invite you to share in and to lead much of the response. Today for this journey, we are joined by two of the authors and two respondents. Paul Ehrlich is often thought of as one of the grandfathers, leaders, great names. I know you don't like that, Paul, but, and for almost 70 years has been educating us, providing opportunities for us to learn the um, serious threats to civilization, the existential issues that are threatening all of us and future generations. Graham and I actually were stirred into interest in this by a statement or an article actually written by Jim Hansen some years ago about the reticence of scientists. And Jim hit that that button because he had sent an article to the PNAS, the uh, Journal of the National Academy of Sciences, and the editors objected to the fact that he called climate, the climate disruption situation, dangerous. They said they didn't want terrible words like dangerous in it, even though I would have used catastrophic instead. And so we started to work on this with a lot of different people. And it turned out that a lot of different people, most of my colleagues are scared witless of what's going on in the world now. And I I think it was all summarized for me recently by we just got rid of, as some of you may have heard of a cacistocracy in the United States, although not entirely, we still have a lot in it. And the new president said that he was gonna deal with four things, if I recall correctly. One was the pandemic, which has been totally bungled by the previous administration and remains bungled. And then there is the economic fallout of that. And then there's also our institutional racism. And then he said climate change. And this struck me as being typical of a really bright, interested, uh, humane individual raised in our disastrous education system who doesn't focus on, as nobody else does in the political realm, of the fact that the first three all become moot if the climate situation goes in the direction that it's going now. And that uh, basically uh, the federal government, just like Stanford University should, and I suspect even UBC, focusing its main thrust on the fact that we have these existential threats that go far beyond the climate disruption situation. As a recent book by Shanna Swan projects that we may have a zero sperm count in human beings by the middle of the century, which certainly would be a solution to the population problem. Gerardo will be able to tell you uh, in some detail the fact that we're having a catastrophic loss of biodiversity and that the biodiversity is absolutely essential to human beings doing some things they like to do, such as eat, for example. And of course, we're going to have Nate tell us he has got the closest contact of anybody I know and understanding of the fact that most economists are daydream believers uh, and that we should be shutting down departments of economics and certainly business schools uh, if we're gonna have a chance of surviving. So there's uh, lots and lots to talk about. 
And what most of us are focused on now in one form or another, and I suspect even the same kind of group will do it, is on what kind of responses we should be generating uh, to this catastrophic threat to humanity, uh, to not just a civilization with, with our mutually assured imbecility uh, with nuclear weapons, we may uh, actually manufacture ourselves or actually through climate disruption uh, and end the homo sapiens. That's less likely than an end to our civilization, but it certainly is possible. Next, we have a reaction to the Ghastly Future paper by Bill Rees, who was not an author. William Rees is Professor Emeritus at the University of British Columbia. He directed the School of Community and Regional Planning there. Over the years, I recorded many of Bill's speeches, always learning from his brilliance. Here is Bill talking to the paper, underestimating the challenges of avoiding a ghastly future. This paper is based on the Enlightenment tradition of how human beings ought to respond rationally or reasonably to an obvious and accelerating crisis. Now, I have said as clearly as I can that from a scientific point of view, as a scientist, this is an incredibly compelling paper. On the other hand, we have to face a certain reality. And the first point is that the fact of the matter is that humankind is not primarily a rational species. Obviously, we're capable of reason, we're capable of high intellect, we're capable of reasoning from the evidence, but it's not the dominant means by which we conduct human affairs. And this is not a secret. If we go back to Gustave Le Bon, who was probably the first uh, psychologist who considered these kinds of questions back in the late 19th century, a wonderful little book you can download from the internet called The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind. And for this purpose, I've just pulled one quote from it, and there are many like this. Quote, the masses have never thirsted after truth. They turn aside from evidence that is not to their taste, preferring to deify error, if error seduces them. Whoever can supply them with the illusions is easily their master. Whoever attempts to destroy their illusions is always their victim. So people are really masters of self-delusion. And just as the editors of the journals that Geraldo was talking about tended to decline papers that seemed alarmist or whatever, we have a predisposition to cover up uh, those things that we find unpleasant. Another excellent source of how this plays out in the real world is the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning American historian Barbara Tuchman, who in her book The March of Folly describes this behavior as wooden headedness. And so wooden headedness plays a remarkably large role in government. It consists in assessing a situation of preconceived fixed notions. And that can be ideology, uh, religion, it can be even scientific theory, while ignoring contrary signs. It is acting according to wish, while not allowing oneself to be deflected by the facts. So here we have a marvelous paper full of undeniable facts, but it doesn't mean necessarily that we're going to pay any attention to them. Now, there's a, an actually a, a neurocognitive explanation for this. We now know that if a person is exposed to repeated experiences or repeated thought patterns in the course of his development, these literally help to shape the synaptic circuits 
in the brain. And once these circuits are established, this is really the source of habitual thinking and habitual action. People seek out compatible experiences. They seek out compatible people. Look how the social media have solidified this view. People are constantly in echo chambers talking among themselves about delusions that they share. And, quote, when faced with information does, that does not agree with their preformed internal neural structures, we tend to deny, discredit, reinterpret, or forget that information. And that's a quote from Bruce Wexler's excellent little book called Brain and Culture on this topic. So we have a problem of denial, and it's partially due to our cognitive experience. The problem with your reason solutions, Paul and Geraldo, is that they don't fit by preconceived notions of the problem. So there's a bigger problem than that, and that is in the past probably 50 years since the Thatcher, Reagan, and in Canada, Brian Mulroney era, uh, the population has literally been socially engineered to ignore reality. So there's been an ongoing program of promotion of the ideas associated with neoliberal economics, extreme individualism, and so on and so forth, precisely toward uh, developing these synaptic circuits that help us to uh, deny reality so that we seek out the reassuring lie rather than the inconvenient truth as posed in this paper. So today we find that politics is increasingly influenced by neoliberal ideology, religious fundamentalism, climate change denial, anti-intellectualism, and other forms of magical thinking. Everything that flies in the face of the evidence presented in this excellent paper. And I think it's important that the Oxford Dictionaries back in 2016 coined, or didn't coin, but chose as their word of the year, post-truth which they define as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than our appeals to emotion and personal belief. So again, this underscores the, the general sense that humans are not primarily rational, particularly in groups, but we tend to be more responsive to emotional appeals or to our instinctive analyses. So this really is a new age of science denial and magical thinking. It's the, I use the term darkenment to describe what seems to be happening these days. This is how it shows up in the real world. These are data from NOAA, the, the uptick in carbon dioxide emissions in the atmosphere over the last, uh, what, 60 years or so. And what we see here is a steady, in fact, exponentially increasing increase in global atmospheric carbon dioxide levels. But in that period of 50 years or so, we've seen 34 climate conferences addressing this problem, a half dozen major international agreements, and they've had virtually no effect on the direction in which this is going. And you'll notice another earlier warning uh, to the world community was limits to growth. Already about 50 years ago now, just as alarming in many respects as the current paper. Now, following that was the first world scientist's warning to humanity in 1992. So none of these major events, these major historical events designed to address the problem seem to have any effect on the continuous uptick in our climate dilemma. And just to go back to that limits to growth, this 50-year-old document, in the last decade or so, there's been at least three other studies of what has actually happened in the world 
after the rejection of the limits to growth model. So the base case or standard run is the green line. The purple dots are the data from real world analyses of trends that have occurred since the rejection of limits to growth as a, a reasonable description of reality. And in fact, you can see that reality is following fairly closely the standard run of that limits to growth analysis, which puts us on course for a mid-century collapse of the global economy, uh, resources, population, the human enterprise, as it were. I'm not predicting this, but I am stating that the science suggests the direction in which we are going. That was Dr. William Rees. Dr. Nate Hagens is not a scientist. He is trained in economy and was a senior figure in a Wall Street firm. Then he became an independent energy analyst. Hagen's appeared on a full show interview on Radio Ecoshock in January 2020. Now we get Nate's quick, piercing outline of our big picture situation, as recorded in 2022 by Living Resilience. So I loved the paper. I think it's an important piece of the puzzle. I'm going to try to give a macro framework of where that fits into our socioeconomic situation. I'm going to give three core themes in five minutes the human metabolism, a systemic risk summary, and a choreography with a few suggestions for uh, response. So first of all, energy is the currency of life. Uh, The origins of capitalism might be found in nature because there's an energy and investment and an energy return for all biological organisms. There's a scaling law that relates the metabolism of biological organisms and structures to their mass and it ends up being their mass to the three-quarter power. And this actually also applies to human systems. The global human enterprise uses energy at around three-quarters to the power of our size. So a few hundred years ago, we uh, happened upon fossil sunlight that was stored underground, and we all have been alive during the upper part of this curve, which I refer to as the carbon pulse, Right now, humanity is uh, generating a constant metabolism of 17 terawatts, which is equal to 170 billion 100-watt light bulbs turned on all the time. This is because we're accessing fossil carbon and hydrocarbons 10 million times faster than they were sequestered. One barrel of oil does four and a half years of my or anyone on this call's physical work. And the global economy uses 100 billion barrel of oil equivalents of fossil fuels every year, which works out to a labor equivalent of 500 billion human workers relative to the four or five billion actual human workers. So this explains some of the data in Gerardo's paper where a few hundred years ago relative to today, we've increased the biomass of megafauna on the planet by sevenfold due to this bolus of ancient productivity. Most of this is our livestock, where humans and our livestock now outweigh wild mammals uh, 50 to 1 approximately. So in effect, especially oil, but all global fuels are acting as the hemoglobin of a globally interconnected economic system. And no one's in charge of this system. Global human culture, when we cooperate at family levels, at corporations, at nation states towards getting our basic needs, we end up tethering to energy and we're becoming globally an energy dissipating structure, something I liken to an amoeba, a mindless amoeba. So this is kind of a scary proposition, but I think this gets to some of the conclusions in the Gasly paper. 
And I've spent a lot of time in the last year dealing with high-level U.S. politicians, and I now really believe this to be true. Given this framing, there is no one driving the bus, not politicians, not billionaires. We're enthralled to this economic system pursuing growth, and it can't be stopped until it stops of its own accord. Trying to degrow, trying to put prices on carbon and shrink our economy is akin to arguing with a forest fire. We've been arguing to no avail for 50 years. So effectively, our economies are now growth constrained, and we're going to kick any and all political social cans forward in order to keep growing. Well, with that framework, what is not likely to happen? What's unlikely to happen is growing the economy and mitigating climate change in the sixth mass extinction discussed in this paper. Growing the economy by replacing fossil carbon with renewables. Humans en masse choosing to keep carbon in the ground and in governments embracing limits to growth before we're already past limits to growth. Under this superorganism framing, what is likely to happen? We're gonna grow our gross energy while the net energy declines. We're gonna have massive monetary creation by governments and central banks, modern monetary theory, et cetera. Universal basic income, populism, nationalism. We're gonna to continue to keep kicking cans until we hit a wall. So where's the risk on this? So our culture, we care about nature, we care about climate change, but we're energy blind. We don't see that we're part of a system. And en masse, we're drawing down the principle and considering it as, as interest. So getting back to the, the themes in, in Gerardo and Paul's paper, if we think of the carbon pulse, the environmental impact of this is in two categories. One is the metabolism of the human heat engine. So we use all this energy and the waste stream, the CO2 goes to the atmosphere and the ocean. But there's a separate category, which is the toxics, the fact that we're losing insect biomass at two and a half a year. There's so much plastics in the ocean. And as our fossil carbon declines, these curves may go in different directions. After we peak in fossil carbon, and I would, I would argue strongly that global peak oil was, was 2018, and that's a whole nother discussion. But I think the metabolism impact of humans is peaking now. And so the, our, our CO2 is peaking in the next decade. But as our economies decline and we try to get our same neurotransmitters en masse that we have, will our other impacts go up on the environment? An open question. So we've arrived at a species level story, but it's not yet integrated. Gerardo did a great job of integrating the environmental damage in this paper, but that's just one part of the story. We have finance and geopolitics and climate change and renewable energy and all these other things. We as a culture live with lots of islands of expertise separated by an ocean of nonsense. And we need to fly up high enough and look down at what's happening. The other problem alluded to in the paper was that this story is complex, it's threatening, it's in the future, it's abstract. There's no key people on television telling us this. There's no easy answers. So it's the perfect storm for our evolved tribal minds to ignore or deny, which makes it almost impossible to have this story be discussed on the halls of Congress or on MSNBC News. It's a real pickle. Okay, so where do we go from here? I think given the metabolism underpinning our civilization, there's a disparity between what we should do and what we're going to have to do. So in my analysis, I think we're headed for a financial recalibration because we've been kicking the can using debt for over 50 years. We need to plan for a smaller economy, but we're getting social signals 
that all these things are going to be solved with a growing economy. So in my opinion, we have a series of social, environmental, political challenges that we can't solve right now. We have to solve them sequentially. And as you've seen, even with the election of Biden, our country, the United States, is 50-50 pretty much, or 51-49. And we have some dire risk for democracy and social cohesion. We first have to navigate that and get some sort of unity in our country to keep social dialogues in government intact. Then we have a date in the next decade with a financial calibration back down to the biophysical energy and materials underpinning it. And then if we navigate that, I think we have a chance at sustainability and governance. Real briefly, here's three ideas that um, my teams and organizations are working on. One is at the moment of this financial recalibration, we're gonna have massive deflation. At that moment, we could tax not only carbon, but all non-renewable resources and remove a tax on human labor. It would do more for climate change and all other environmental, most other environmental impacts than any activism of the last 50 years, but it could never be enacted right now because it would be too unpopular. It would imply a shrinking economy, but we can build blueprints and, and constituency ahead of time. We also undeniably need to move away from being a heat engine as our cultural aspiration. GDP was never meant to be our goal. So we need to move towards more well-being. How are we actually doing? And I've got a state level project working on this. And finally, I don't believe we're ever gonna directly communicate these challenges to sitting politicians unless we're in a crisis because this is not on their job description. So I think to create networks of people, high level people, philanthropists, former political leaders, business leaders, et cetera, that integrate how the situation fits together. And then they in turn can come up with blueprints, break glass in case of emergency plans and hand them off to people in a credible way when the situation warrants it. So in, in short, in conclusion, we've had a series of social contracts in our uh, species history, and we're now approaching a species level social contract. We are not in alive in normal times. And for all of you on this call, thank you for joining. For some part of your personal professional life, please consider service to the future. Thank you. We have only time for a few selections from the long question and answer segment, starting with Paul Ehrlich. Uh, recognizing, uh, for example, the role of emotion uh, in uh, trying to get things done. This idiotic, I, I had a big fight with Al Gore. He got me to a meeting where the mission, the mission was to get the scientific information to people faster. And I told him, it's not going to make any damn difference how fast you get it to them because they're not evidence they're not evidence-based uh we're a small group animal and uh as i and, and uh, there's a huge literature by the way in social psychology that's pertinent to all of this but ecologists pay no attention i got bill cialdini uh, and a couple of other social psychologists to talk to the ecological society of america a few years ago to try and convince them to stop being so silly uh, and we totally failed and uh, the big challenge now, basically, as Jones said, uh, is what are your responses to this? Uh, as she once said to me, there are no solutions anymore, but there are responses. Uh, and that's our big challenge. And uh, a bunch of us are working on it. And Bill has expressed it many times and brilliantly. Uh, and 
frankly, people don't pay attention to. I pay attention to them, and most of my colleagues pay attention to them, but nobody else does any more than they pay attention to me. We wrap up this whirlwind selection from the Ghastly Future panel with a bit more from Dr. Bill Reese. The final thing I'd like to say at this point is that the one thing we've omitted in this whole discussion and also in the paper is the role of sheer power, political power. We are in a situation today where in many countries, uh, power is really held by the corporate sector that has a vested interest in maintaining the status quo, the growth-oriented status quo that, that Nate described. We've seen agency capture, where many of the regulatory agencies, particularly in the United States, but also in Canada and elsewhere, are now controlled by former members of major corporations that used to uh, be regulated by those regulators. So you see this situation where there's an interdigitation of governance with the corporate sector, which has a completely different agenda from the one outlined in this paper, and which is in the interests of the vast majority of human beings. So we have that power dynamic that we need to address and we need to address it directly and this to my mind is at least as important that scientists speak to power as they speak to the facts of the matter that that we've been dealing with here. Finally the biggest conflict or I suppose barrier that we have is the role of social media I, I touched on it briefly, but it reinforces these mythical constructs that people glom onto. So almost any crazy idea that comes up now, you can find some uh, internet website or whatever that reinforces people's belief in that kind of magical thinking, mythology, nonsense. But it, it, it means that society has lost its sense of collective purpose. There's a breakdown in community. There's no sense of a forward movement for humans as a whole. We've become a kind of uh, disorganized, disheveled group of warring factions around some of the basic ideas that we need to understand in order to move forward and increase the possibilities of, of cultural survival on Earth. You just heard selections from a Poetry of Predicament podcast discussing the mind-blowing paper called Underestimating the Challenges of Avoiding a Ghastly Future. Find links to the full YouTube video plus EcoShock interviews with all the speakers in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. <laughs>